at any point in the sermon, I may just run out of door too, so it's no big deal. It's completely capable of that. All right, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 2. We are going to continue looking at the book of Daniel over the next several weeks. If you have a copy of God's Word on your phone, feel free to bring that out. We are not going to read the text at the beginning like we often do because Daniel 2 is a very long chapter and we're going to cover almost all of it in its entirety. So you'll want to keep your Bible open. That's going to be the place that we'll stay this morning or you can continue to have access to God's Word this morning. Some of it will be up on the screen Uh, Depending on how good your eyesight is, you'll be able to see that as well as we go go along this morning in Daniel chapter 2. I wanted to show you some some artwork that I've been working on lately. You can tell that I'm obviously the one that that did this. Actually, I did not do this, I'll have you know. But if any of the ladies wanted to see what you're going to be making on Friday night, yours will turn out exactly like this, I'm sure. I'm so confident of that. But uh, many of you have incredible artistic ability, and so they just wanted you to see what it was going to, uh, what it was going to look like, what, what you were working on. So I don't even draw a good stick person, so I stay away from art as, as much as I can. Lots of respect for it, just no talent to go along with that. Let's pray as we begin our time this morning. Father, as we gather to sing songs together, to pray together, to remind ourselves of your work in our lives and in this world, uh, it's good to have times like this that we slow down, remember, refocus our lives. We come from so many different backgrounds, so many different situations coming uh, into this room. And Father, we pray that you would reestablish us this morning with the purpose and the focus of our lives God, thank you for the children's workers that are here. We thank you for the kids, for the families, for everyone here this morning, God. We pray that you would speak to us through your word and through the time we have in worship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, just to give you a heads up, Daniel chapter 2 is primarily the story of a dream that King, King Nebuchadnezzar had. And I'll tell you one thing about preparing to preach about a dream is that I have had some of the strangest dreams this past week that I've had in my entire life. I kid you not. I don't know what it is about this past week, but I have had some strange, strange dreams. I've changed up a, a thyroid medication, so I blame it on the medication, but it may be the sermon preparation. I, I don't know what, what it is, but something about this last week has been crazy. Christians... And religious people in general have had a long history with dreams, just not sure. Do you blame it on what you ate the night before? Do you blame it on something that's happening in your life? Like, what, how do you understand dreams? I never made a big deal out of dreams until the summer after my senior year in college. The summer after my senior year in college, I spent about eight weeks in Southeast Asia in a country called Cambodia, teaching English and doing ministry work. We were in what is about the second or third largest city in Cambodia called Siem Reap. And we were going to take a trip. There were four of us from the United States in this particular group, four of us that were working with a missionary on the field. And they were going to send us on a couple-day trip to the capital city called Phnom Penh. And so we were getting ready to head out to Phnom Penh. 
And the missionary on the ground who we were working with came to us the day before we left. And she said, I had a dream last night that your plane tickets are wrong. So we looked, and sure enough, had she not that had that dream about our plane tickets, we would have been stuck for three extra days by ourselves in the capital city of Cambodia with no way to get back to the people who are support on the ground. And so we looked at the plane tickets, we got them changed, everything worked out. From that time on though, if I have a dream, I pay attention to it because I have no idea. Some of you may have great stories about times in your life that you had a dream and you thought, wow, if it had not been for that, who knows what might have happened in in my life. This story in Daniel chapter 2 is about a time that this king, this pagan king in Babylonia, had a dream in which the Lord made very clear how he was working in his life, but not just in his life, but for all of eternity. Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the second year of his reign, so we're in the year about 602 B.C., something like that. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. Describes a lot of you last night, probably. But uh, chapter 2, or not, not chapter 2, verse 2. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. Just a quick note, it's interesting that in the original text, in verse 4, it transitions from the Hebrew language to the Aramaic language. Daniel is one place in the Old Testament where when it says in the Aramaic, for the next five chapters, Daniel is written in Aramaic, and and there's a lot of debate about why that's the case. Verse 4, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Verse 5, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. We probably all had the experience of you wake up in the morning and you go to tell your spouse or your kids or someone at work, you go to tell them about the dream that you had last night that was so vivid in your mind, and then it starts to escape you. Like you're like, I, I, I can barely hold on to a little bit of the dream, but I don't remember what it was all about. There's a chance that King Nebuchadnezzar here has simply forgotten what his dream was. It troubled him, it scared him, he wanted to know. More than likely, though, he remembers his dream, even as he's telling these magicians that they need to tell him the dream. The reason that he tells them they need to tell him the dream is because archaeologists in this area of the world have found dream interpretation manuals. 
And so what would happen is there would be these astrologers or these magicians who would work for the king. And if the king or someone had a dream, they would bring the dream to this astrologer, this magician. They would open their magic books and they would look at the symbols and then they would provide an interpretation of the dream. But the king, at this point, King Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't want an interpretation. He wants a revelation. And, and we need to make sure we understand the difference because it helps us understand the way the story works. He doesn't want an interpretation because they could give him a worldly interpretation from their dream books about what this dream might be. But the king, he wants to hear straight from God. In the history of religions, there are certain religions like Judaism, Christianity, Islam that are built on the concept of revelation. Not the book in the Bible called Revelation, but revelation in the sense that it's not us making up stories about the gods, but it's that the gods or the God has revealed himself to us. And so the king in this situation, he doesn't want them just to give him a standard worldly interpretation. He needs to hear from God about what's going on. So look down in verse 10, and you're going to see kind of the way this works itself out. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. And, and they're true. They're right about that. No king However great and mighty has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. Then look at the next phrase. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. In this Babylonian religion, the idea that there were gods was okay, but those gods were far away and they did not reveal themselves or make themselves known in the lives of the people. And so these astrologers and magicians realized the only hope that anybody could have to be able to give a dream like this to the king is if it came from God or the gods. Down in verse 12, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Daniel and his friends were being trained in these ancient Babylonian art forms of, of dream interpretation. Verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Now one of the things that the storyteller is doing at this point is he's going to set up a contrast between the Babylonian magicians and, and Daniel and his friends. Daniel and his friends at this point are about 17 or 18 years old. And it says there that they spoke with wisdom and tact. Now, I don't know about yourself, about you, when you were 17 or 18, but most 17 and 18 year olds are not known for speaking with wisdom and tact. That's just not the things that normally come out of a, of a teenager's mouth. And so in some humorous way, we know this has to be from the Lord because no 17-year-old is going to be able to go in and do this before a king. Uh, you know, in relating to people in your life, especially to a spouse, it's not so much what you say, but how you say it. So Amanda comes and asks me, hey, how does this shirt look? Well, I just paused too long. You, you paused. Well, 
I just couldn't come up with enough amazing words to express the way that I, that I thought about that piece of clothing. And so, well, you didn't say it with conviction. You didn't really mean it. You just said, but I said, I like the shirt. Yeah, but I wanted to hear that you really like the shirt. That's not what you, you, you try to say the right things, but they just don't come out in, in the right way. And so what it's saying here is that Daniel had a God-given ability to speak to the king with wisdom and tact. And this actually ties back in to what the Lord was doing in Daniel's life in chapter 1. Keep going with the story there, since I've completely gotten distracted with wisdom and tact. But verse 15, he asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He urged them, in verse 18, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. All right, that is a key verse for understanding this story. What had the wise men and the magicians in Babylon wanted to do when they heard the king had a dream? They wanted to go to their magic books, to their dream interpretation manuals. What does Daniel do when he hears about this situation? He goes to his friends and they pray to God. You see the difference that's being set up in this story. One group, their solution is to get a word from a human book. The other group, their solution is to go before the one true God and to say, we need you to do something that only you could do by your power. And there is something powerful in the history of Christianity, in the history of following after the Lord, when you're in a situation that all you can do is get a few friends around you and say, we have to pray. No human answer is going to help us at this point. We need to hear from the Lord together. And that's exactly what Daniel and his friends do. Look what happens in verse 19. No surprise to us, but it would have been a surprise to the people who first heard this. Verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. Listen to what Daniel says. In, in your, if you're reading out of a hard copy or maybe out, off a tablet or even some phones, you'll notice in verse 20 the type changes a little bit. It's not right and left justified. It changes, and it signifies that this is a, a psalm. It's, this is their praise, their reaction to what, what God has shown them. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. Then look at the next phrase. He sets up kings and deposes them. That's going to be crucial in just a couple of minutes. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Daniel in no way is going to take credit for what has happened. He knows that it's only because of the power of God and only because of the wisdom of God that he's ever going to survive the situation. Verse 24, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. 
Skip down to verse 26. So the king asked Daniel, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. Then verse 28, if you like to underline in your Bible, it's a good place to underline or highlight. Verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. This dream started with God. Daniel realized that, and he knew that only God could give the meaning of the dream. And here's the dream. Verse, 20, or verse 31, here's what happened. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. If you guys, uh, any of you third graders and, and above who are in here, if you're looking for something to do during this time, a fun activity, if your parent is next to you, is to draw out maybe what that statue might have, uh, might have looked like. But I, since I cannot draw, I searched the internet, which is the second best thing. So here's the picture I found on the internet. Now, in my mind, as I was thinking about this dream, I was thinking about like a mountain and a rock being cut off the mountain like a rock slide and coming down. Whoever made this picture apparently had the idea of a jewel meteorite coming in from outer space and smashing the, uh, smashing the statue. If you Google Daniel 2 dream, you'll see some wacky drawings of what it might have looked like. But that gives you an idea of how this king had a dream of a massive statue. If you come back next week for Daniel chapter 3, you'll find out that Nebuchadnezzar had this incredible fascination with huge, huge statues. But that gives you an idea. So what in the world is this dream about? Verse 36. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. We saw last week that the phrase God gave is fundamental to understanding Daniel. It says there in verse 37, God has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar is the head of this statue that he dreamed about. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom 
strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. And then in verse 44, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That's the core of what Daniel 2 is all about. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Now, in the history of understanding what's happening in Daniel 2 here, there are four kingdoms, and usually these four kingdoms are described where the head, Nebuchadnezzar, is the kingdom of Babylon. The next kingdom is considered to be the kingdom of the Persians. The next kingdom is the kingdom of the Greeks. And then the fourth kingdom is usually considered to be the Roman kingdom. Because the Romans were ruling when Jesus was born. And Jesus, when it says that there was a rock cut out of a mountain but not by human hands, a lot of commentators believe that that refers to the virgin birth of Christ. That he was able to come not by the act of a human or by two humans coming together, but by ultimately only an act of God. And in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament prophecies, but especially in the New Testament, Jesus is often referred to as a rock. And so it's tied back to this dream in Daniel chapter 2. Now there is a lot of debate about who that fourth kingdom is. If you look on the internet... And word to the wise, don't believe everything you read on the internet. But if you look on the internet, that fourth kingdom is usually considered either to be the Romans or it's considered to be Great Britain. You think about the area of the world that Great Britain ruled in its heyday. Or, brace yourselves, no surprise here, it's considered to be the United States. Now, that's a possibility. There is a chance that God, in his wisdom, prophesied in such a way that that was what this dream was referring to. More than likely, though, it's going to refer to the Romans, to a kingdom that was in play in the time of Scripture and in the coming of the Messiah. However, I think one commentator made a particularly good point about this. The fourth kingdom referred to in this dream is essentially whatever kingdom you are living in while you're reading the text. Because the whole point of this text is that another kingdom, a kingdom from God, will come and will destroy whatever earthly kingdoms we are building up. So that fourth kingdom there is whatever we are seeking to build on our own strength, realizing that the Lord will destroy all of those. If you have a bulletin with you, or you received uh, one of those programs as you came in, if you turn it over on the back, There are two things that I think we can learn particularly from this passage, from Daniel 2. How does this dream impact the way we live? 
The first is to remember that all human kingdoms will ultimately fail, will ultimately fall. Genesis 11.4 is the story of the Tower of Babel. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. But Psalm 46 reminds us, nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, God lifts his voice, and the earth melts. In other words, anything that we seek to establish by our power for our glory according to our purposes, it will fall. It will not last forever. And Daniel 2 makes that particularly clear. This applies. Let me give you a few applications to this. And hear me out on each of these because I I don't want to be misunderstood as much as I can help it. This applies to the United States of America. Now I know that that may sound incredibly unpatriotic. And many of you have served our country and served our country well. Where we make a mistake though is when we equate the United States of America with God's kingdom, as if the two are exactly identical. Patriotism says that we are one nation under God. Not one nation in place of God, not one nation alongside God, one nation under God. Patriotism is one of the greatest gifts that we have and one of the worst gods we can imagine. If we replace God's kingdom and say we're going to set up our own kingdom on earth, our country has brought great good to the world and stopped incredible evil. But it is not supposed to function as the kingdom that will come, this rock that will come and destroy all earthly kingdoms. And we recognize when we look at our world, our country will come to an end. And and frankly, with some of the things happening, maybe quicker than we would like or expect, but we realize that this is an earthly kingdom. This is an earthly act, and yet it is a great gift from the Lord. So what else I want to realize is it's not wrong to love your country. It's not wrong to serve your country. Those are good things. It's wrong to think that the United States of America is this rock that God would send from outer space that would destroy all the earthly kingdoms. That is not what this scripture is saying. Another kingdom that we try to build up on our own strength is sometimes local churches. Not the church, big C, referring to all kingdoms, because Jesus is very clear that his church will endure forever, that it will not be overcome, that the gates of hell cannot overcome the church. But when local churches seek to live for their own name or their own glory or protect their own identity so that they will never fall, we end up equating a local church for God's kingdom when that's not the way it's meant to be. Local churches exist for God's kingdom, to advance God's kingdom, to build God's kingdom here on earth as we see him work in our lives. And so what it means is our goal is not to make First Baptist great, Our goal is to make God's kingdom great. That is what we live for. That is the foundation of our lives because the day might come that a local church here and there will fall, but God's kingdom will never fall. The third thing is anytime we live for an individual kingdom, we try to build something that we think this will never fall. You try to build your business and you say, 
I hope this never falls. Or you try to build your family and you say, I hope this never falls. Or you try to build joy into your life with human means and you say, I hope this never falls. Anything that we seek to build in our own strength that is not geared toward the kingdom of God will ultimately come to an end. Which is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Because moth and rust are going to destroy those, and thieves are going to break in and still lay up for yourselves where? Treasures in heaven. They're based in something that will endure. I put a question on your notes that has been helpful for me personally. How can I tell what kingdom I'm attempting to build? It's what we are most concerned with losing or seeing it fall apart or seeing it stop. If there is something in your life that you think, if I lost this, or if it stopped, or if this fell apart, my life would be over. It means that you are trying to build that as your ultimate kingdom and not the kingdom of God. And many of you have built businesses and you've seen them fall. You've poured yourself into people and you've seen that fall apart. You've pursued things that you thought were good and you saw that fall apart. All of those things are a reminder that all human kingdoms will fall, but, and this is the second point of your notes, but we can rejoice that God's kingdom will endure forever and everywhere. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then look at the last part. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. My prayer for your family, my prayer for your life, my prayer for this church is that we would not live to make our kingdom great, that we would not live to make our name great, but that we would live for the kingdom of God, to know that he will rule forever and he will reign forever. And if we live for that, the impact of that will remain forever. Here in just a minute, we're gonna come back around and we're gonna sing that song again, Build Your Kingdom Here. And I hope after seeing this picture from Daniel chapter two, you'll be able to sing those words maybe in a fresh way. If God's working in your life in some particular thing, if you've seen something in your life come to an end and you can feel your life falling apart, as a result of that, and I can pray for you or encourage you, I would love to do that. This is our chance to respond to God's word together, to think about, am I living for my kingdom or am I living for his kingdom? Let's pray together.